0: come let us bow down and worship let us kneel before the lord our maker for he is our god and we are the people of his pasture the flock under his care today if only you would hear his voice do not harden your hearts as you did at meribah as you did that day at massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me they tried me though they had seen what i did for 40 years i was angry with that generation I said, there are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you very much, Esther. And it's a joy to be with you in God's word for my final Sunday here. And as we, as we come to it, why don't we pray just asking for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign God, powerful God, and a God who speaks through your Holy Spirit. And as we hear your voice to us today, we pray that we might not harden our hearts, but we listen to what you have to say. Work in us, we pray, through Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chefs like to combine interesting flavors, we, we all know that, and sometimes it works to combine flavors that actually seem to be opposites, flavors that really contrast, and again, it's not hard to think of examples such as our favorite sweet and sour pork, those opposite flavors, combine in a way which is really tangy, which everyone loves. Or how about salted caramel lattes? Who would have thought that you can put salt and caramel in a in a coffee and for it to work? I know coffee purists might say that it doesn't really work, but there there is possible to you know to combine different flavors in a way like that. Or how about having some tart lemon on your fish and chips dinner? It just helps to bring out the flavor of the fish, the lemon, doesn't it? And and sometimes when you're combining different flavors, as you know, you can have really strong flavors in there, of course, like wasabi. I was having lunch with a family the other day, and we're having sushi, and one of the children took a little bit too much wasabi. And For a minute or so, her face was contorted in agony as the the wasabi kind of did its thing. And then after that, she smiled and had some more wasabi because wasabi kind of makes it better. And I think that's what we see something of that in today's passage. We're doing a mini-series in the book of Psalms, and the Psalms are the hymn book of ancient Israel. It's full of scriptural truths, but it's more than that. It's full of truths expressed in a way which is authentic and genuine and emotional, connects with us at a a deep level. And as well as being authentic and genuine, it's also sometimes surprising. And I think that's what we see here in today's psalm, this surprising combination. The psalm splits into two halves, and the first half of Psalm 95 is a call to worship. It's a reminder that God should be at the center of our lives. He's the loving redeemer and creator. He's that good shepherd and close friend. And as a result, it's correct and good that we should praise him for all that he's done. But then in the the second half of the psalm, there's a sudden change in tone. It's almost as though the wasabi kicks in as there's a warning and an implicit question. Is that if God deserves to be at the center of, of our lives and if we should be, praising him on a Sunday, then what about the rest of the week? Are we living lives where we're listening to God's voice and obeying it? Well, That's what we're going to be thinking about today, and we're splitting it up into those two sections. Firstly, we see here a call to worship. The book of tells us, The book of Hebrews tells us that David is the author of Psalm 95, and he's calling the people to worship and to extol God. Listen to what he says. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Well, David tells the people to praise God. And the main reason he gives is that God is the Savior. God is described here as the rock of our salvation. Uh, David was a, a military man and he was often in battles and he knew the value of a rocky outcrop, which could be used as a fortress. And the Bible tells us that God is our rock, that he is our fortress, that he is the one who rescues and saves his people. He did that many times in the Old Testament, but the key time that he did it was when he brought them out of Egypt. And you remember that the people of Israel were imprisoned, enslaved in Egypt but that God showed his mighty strength over all of the gods and the spiritual forces of Egypt when he sent those ten plagues. And then he defeated Pharaoh and all of his vast army of chariots in the Red Sea. And you might remember in Exodus chapter 15, when the people of Israel stood on the banks of the Red Sea and saw their God had delivered him, they just burst out into song. Moses and Miriam and the people of Israel began to sing this long song in Exodus chapter 15. I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider is thrown into the sea. And so hundreds of years later, David, who is not just a a military man, but also a poet and a songwriter and a musician, was calling the people of Israel to worship God and to do so in song, to extol him. That means to to put him at the center of our lives and to do that with music. And it's right that we should do that as well. As we meet on Sundays, week by week, an important element of our meeting is, is singing, praising God. And that's because it's truth, but also our hearts and our emotions. Singing is very powerful. Listen to how it's been put by Keith Getty, He's a well-known Christian uh, songwriter, and he often performs as well with his wife. God designed our psyche for singing. God has formed our hearts to be moved with depth of feeling and a whole range of emotion as the melody carried truth of who God is and who we are sink in. The Singing connects with both our head and our hearts and our emotions as in a holistic way with all of our being, we praise God for who he is and for what he's done, that he is the savior God who rescues his people. But David reminds them that God is the savior rescuing God, but also that he's the creator God. And he goes on to say, in his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. You see, the ultimate division in reality is between God, the creator, and the things which are made in this world. As we look around, we see all kinds of things which have been made. They've been brought into existence by God. But God stands distinct to all of those things because he's the uncreated creator, he made the deep tectonic plates. He made the high mountains. He made the sea and the land. He made all of the vegetation and the animals, all of the beautiful things that we enjoy in life. All of those things come from God. And it's so important that we remember that God is the creator, that he's our maker. And this is important for us to all remember. And I think especially if we're investigating the Christian faith. Sometimes I speak to people who are exploring and they say to me, well, why should God, why should he tell me what to do? Why should God be at the center of my life? Isn't that quite egocentric of him? But the reason is it's because God is the creator. This amazing world that we live in didn't come out of nowhere. No, God designed it. God invented it and God has brought it into existence. And so the reality is that he knows. He knows what is really right and wrong to do in this world because he made this world he made this world and he made all of us each and every one of us he knows what's right for us and the bible tells us that humanity has been created for a relationship with god the goal of our life the telus of our life is anchored and focused on god himself that is why he needs to be at the center and that is why it's right for us to extol him to worship him because he is this creator God. He's a redeemer God, he's a creator God, but he's not a distant God. No, he's a God who draws near, and listen to how David describes it. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. What describes here the people as being like the flock of the pasture. And that means that God is the shepherd. Now, David, as you remember, when he was a young boy, was a a shepherd. And the the shepherds in those days didn't get to go home in the evening to have a nice rest. No, they just stayed out in the field with the sheep, looking after all of the sheep who were perhaps in danger or, or injured, making sure that those sheep didn't stray. And that is what God did when he brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, is that he led them through the wilderness with that pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. He drew near to them and dwelt with them in the tabernacle. He gave them his law so that they might be guided in the right way to live. God is this good God, a redeemer, savior God, a creator, maker God, and this close friend, the good shepherd. Well, that is certainly true for each of us as we relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. We look back not to the defeat of Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea, but to the cross. There at the cross, we know that Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin so that we might be forgiven and all of our sins washed away. So that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ might be saved. He's the Redeemer God, the rock of our salvation. He is also the creator God. Yes, Jesus was incarnate about 2,000 years ago. But we also know that God made this world through his word and that Jesus is the eternal word. So that at the beginning of creation, God, the eternal son, was there. So Jesus made you and he knows what's best for you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. More than that, he loves us. And he draws near. He is our guide, the Good Shepherd. He's put his Holy Spirit in our hearts and his word in our hands so that we might be guided in the right way to live. And so, friends, as a result, it's fit and right that we should praise him, that our hearts should overflow with joy and make music because of what God has done for us. And singing is, is worship. But actually, worship is more than just singing. Singing can be worship when we do it with sincerity. But worship is about putting God at the center of our lives in everything that we do all the time. That he's always in the, the frame of reference, so to speak. Well, It's well known that Ruth Graham, the, the wife of the 20th century evangelist Billy Graham, had above her kitchen sink a little sign that said, divine worship offered here three times daily as a reminder to herself that even if she was doing the most mundane of tasks like washing the dishes that that could be an act of worship now of course men need to wash dishes as as well this isn't just for ladies this is for all of us the point here though isn't who's washing the dishes but that whenever it's our turn to wash the dishes or to do anything in life that we do it in a way that puts God in the reference frame. We may not be praying every single second, but we always remember that God is our creator and that God is our boss. So, for instance, when we're in the workplace, yes, we'll be serving a, a human boss, but we know that God is our true boss. And so we'll seek to live in a way that is full of integrity even if others are doing things that are slightly questionable, that we'll seek to live in a way that's full of love and compassion, even if the workplace is a stressful environment as it often is, that we always have God in the reference frame. That's true worship, all-of-life worship. And then when we come together on Sundays and we sing songs of praise, that is just the natural overflowing of a whole life lived under God that, of course, when we get together, we want to praise God in worship through song as well. Sadly, though, so often our, our hearts don't instinctively do these things. Sadly, so often we might sing the songs on Sunday, but during the week we're not always doing the things that we should be. And that's what the second half of the psalm gets on to, this word of warning. Listen as I read from verse 7. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. Well, it's almost as though the singing comes to a sudden jarring halt and the voice of God booms out over the choir and the congregation to say, today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. There's such a, a change in tone that some liberal scholars have suggested over the years that these are actually two completely separate Psalms that have been glued together. Some churches have been embarrassed about the second half of the psalm and have only focused and read the first half. But what we see is that there is a a thread about worship that runs right the way through, as well as these themes of redemption and the exodus. You see, it mentions over here a place called Meribah, and you may remember Meribah from the story of the Exodus as the people were brought out of Egypt. There are actually two places which were called Meribah or nicknamed Meribah. The first of them was Rephidim. You see, after God had saved his people, he took them to Mount Sinai. But on the way to Mount Sinai, they started to grumble, first about food. Then when they reached Rephidim about water, they started to say to Moses, look, we can't trust God. He's not looking after us even though they'd seen God's loving care, even though they'd seen God's powerful hand with those ten plagues, even though they'd witnessed how he'd saved them from the hand of Pharaoh, they still complained and grumbled. And so the place was called Meribah, which means quarreling, or sometimes also Massah, which means testing. Well, God in his mercy did give them water, water from the rock, But that was the starting point, really, of a tumultuous relationship between God and his people. Time and again, they were rebelling and grumbling, turning away even to worship other gods, such as what they did at Mount Sinai when they worshipped the golden calf. Eventually, as they persisted in this rebellion, God disciplined them. And he said that instead of going straight to the promised land, they would wander around in the desert and that whole generation would die. Listen to how the psalm concludes. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said that there are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. For 40 years, that generation was consigned to the desert. They did not enter God's rest, which was the promised land. And as we read the New Testament accounts of how we should understand that generation, it's very clear that the majority of them, even though they were in the covenant community, in their hearts they had not accepted God. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes them in 1 Corinthians. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So Paul is saying, well, in a sense, these people were even baptized as they passed through the sea. In a sense, they, they drunk from the rock, which symbolized Christ and faith in Christ. But in reality, their hearts were far from God, and they turned away from idols. Well, as a result, they never entered into the promised land. With this, friends, I think is a very stark warning to us. You see, it's possible for us to to be in the covenant community, to be in a sense a part of the people of God, to come week by week, to sing the songs, even to be baptized and take communion and, and be involved here. But in our hearts, to be far away from God, to never truly have accepted Him in and not to be saved. And so the message here is today, if we hear his voice, we should not harden his heart, our hearts. Well, that was the the first story of Meribah. But there's another story of Meribah too. You see, after those 40 years of wandering in the desert, they reached another place called Kadesh Barnea. And there again, the people of Israel complained about lack of water. And there again, God in his mercy gave them water from the rock. But this time he told Moses to speak to the rock. And Moses, in his anger, struck the rock, a direct act of public disobedience. As a result, God disciplined him. And he, too, was prohibited from entering into the promised land. What a heartbreaking story. That Moses, a man of great faith, who'd, who'd led the people all of these years because of an act of sin, Well, it had huge consequences for him and for those around him. And this, friends, I I take as a reminder to us that even if we are a faithful Christian who's living for the Lord Jesus Christ and involved in all kinds of ways, that sin and temptation is a danger for us. And that we need to be careful that our hearts are not hardened because the consequences for us and for those around us can be severe. But there's all kinds of ways in which our hearts might be hardened. Listen to these six examples, which are given by Charles Spurgeon, who was a minister who lived some 150 years away, uh, 150 years ago. These are six ways that he says our hearts can be hardened by resolving not to demonstrate emotion in regard to spiritual things that can harden our hearts, by delaying a real relationship with God by pretending doubts and foolish criticism, by getting into evil company, by focusing on silly amusements, by indulging in a favorite sin. I, I don't know what your reaction to that list is. But to me, it seems very contemporary. Even though it was written 150 years ago, it still seems absolutely relevant today. And the message from Psalm 95 is, today, if we hear... God's voice, our hearts must not become hardened. Well, This psalm is quoted multiple times in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 3 and 4, focusing on verse 7. Let me read from Hebrews chapter 3. So as the Holy Spirit says, "'Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God.' But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Well, what a reminder that the way that the Holy Spirit speaks is through Scripture. Primarily, it's as we open the Bible and read bits of the Bible, like Psalm 95, that God is speaking to us today through His Holy Spirit. And what a reminder that not only individually, but also corporately, we have this responsibility to look after each other and make sure that our hearts are not hardened. I don't know if you've come across the film Groundhog Day. It's all about a, a weatherman called Phil Connors. It came out in 1993. It initially, it was sort of relatively mildly received, but since then, it's been recognized as something of a classic and has recently been included in the US film registry. And it's all about this guy, Phil Connors, and he's stuck in a time loop that every single day is a repeat of February the 2nd. And so he wakes up and the same song is playing over his radio alarm clock and he meets the same people who are doing the same things that they were doing the day before. It's a repeat. He's stuck in this loop. And the day that's repeating is this rather odd day. Groundhog Day, where in America, there's a, there's a tradition, you hold up a groundhog, which I've never seen it happen in practice, but it's something like a rabbit, I think, and the, the sun shines down onto it, and if it casts a shadow, then supposedly, the the weather will repeat for something like the next six weeks. Those of you from the state side can confirm with me afterwards. But the, the point of the film is that he's stuck in a loop that's not repeating for six weeks, but for decades, and the film explores this idea of how a person responds when they're faced with the same choices and decisions day after day after day after day. And I I mention that because as we look at this psalm, although we don't live in a time loop, day by day we are faced with one key decision, which is when we hear God's voice, what will we do with it? Well, the Reformers recognize the importance of that question And when the Anglican Reformers wrote the Book of Common Prayer, yes, they had Sunday services, but they also had morning and evening prayer. And the same service would be used every morning for morning prayer, and Psalm 95 would be quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so, friends, that is the question for us. Are there ways in which we need to be careful not to harden our hearts today? Well, maybe you're here this morning and you you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you've been exploring things for a while and you've not made a commitment yet. Or perhaps you, you realize that you were baptized years ago, but you were baptized for the wrong reasons. Or that you thought you were a Christian, but as you've come to a full understanding of the gospel, you realize you never gave your life to the Lord today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do something about it. And even if we've given our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we need to remember that like Moses, we need to be careful not to let our hearts be hardened and that we'll face the consequences if we do. And maybe even now the Lord is laying something on your heart that, that should change. Maybe it's, it's something that's not necessarily sinful. Perhaps it's those silly amusements that Charles Spurgeon referred to. It's not sinful, but it's taking away too much time. But today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Or maybe there is something sinful in your life, and you know that that thing is there, a besetting sin, or a group of people you're spending time with, and it's unhelpful. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Or perhaps it's something positive that needs to be started for ages you've been saying to yourself i, I need to be better at daily devotionals or i, I need to join a growth group or i, I need to find a prayer partner or I, I need to start reading christian books today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts Well, this message is for all of us and, and certainly as i turn at page on a new chapter i'll be thinking to myself what are the ways in which i'm in danger of hardening my heart this psalm brings together two sections of very different tone and flavor the first half is this wonderful exuberant reminder that god is good that he is the saving god that he is the the creator god who knows us and that He is the good shepherd who draws near to lead us because he wants the best for us. But the second half reminds us that so often there are things in our lives that keep us away from him. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are the rock of our salvation We worship and extol you for being our Redeemer, for being our Creator, and for being the Good Shepherd who draws near. Thank you that you've called us into a loving relationship with you and that you've forgiven us for the times when our hearts are far away. Show us those areas of our lives where perhaps our hearts are in danger of hardening. Help us, we pray, to be receptive to your spirit and also to take action and to do something about it today. Amen.